We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Darius and Mike. And guys, when I was a kid, for a couple of years, I competed in chess tournaments. There's the U.S. Chess Federation that would you know, put on tournaments where it would determine your rating, right? And they'd publish a book on you know like how high you were ranked or they'd publish a book on like the top 50 rankings for age groups and things like that right and so i competed i did this for about i don't know 18 months maybe 2 years and in one of the bigger tournaments that i entered in which was in la i did not grow up in la i grew up on the other side of the san gabriel mountains so going to la was a, a thing right for an, uh, it was an event when you're not not from there in a couple of the bigger tournaments that I was in, there was a second division, kind of like how like if you were to enter Wimbledon, there's the men's doubles, women's doubles, singles, mixed doubles, right? All of that. There's different versions kind of of, of the game. And it was a smaller division, but it was called speed chess. And so normally when we think of chess, we think of two people deliberating, you know, hand on chin, contemplating their next move. And Usually in a, in a sanctioned tournament, you have a clock next to you. And every time you're done, you make your move, you hit the clock and it shifts to the other person's clock. And it was either you had like either 10 minutes or 15 minutes in a normal game of chess. But in a game of speed chess, you only had one minute on each side of the clock. And I was always fascinated by what that did to the strategy of chess in the first place, because kind of the, the tyranny of that ticking clock forced people to make decisions, quick decisions under pressure. And a lot of times the aggressor in the match might make a move that if the other person had a little more time, D, that they would be able to counteract that. But because that constant ticking of the clock, and especially once you got into mid game and you see people, this was, I wasn't a, ch a speed chess player, but it was an awesome sport to watch because they'd move, hit the clock, move, hit the clock, and they're going back and forth like this. And then there's kind of a deluge that happens toward the end of that game where the winner, that the clock and, and the mistakes that were made under that pressure end up breaking you. And 
I say all of that as a setup to the games this weekend. I want that as a backdrop that we can refer to because I think both the Miami game and the Golden State series, which I think we'll talk about the Miami-Boston series a little more in this pod, I think that phenomenon D of being able to make high-level decisions under pressure has been central to both series. And so take that whatever direction you want to go in, but every player has the sequence of basketball that they need to navigate. And I think that the teams that won this weekend are probably the two best teams in the league at navigating that sequence. So first off, my question has nothing to do with any of the basketball. I've tried to figure out what was your highest rating when you were this young kid playing chess? So <laughs> you start with a personal story. We go start yeah, with okay, personal yeah, yeah, no questions. And, and Lord knows I don't, I don't do that terribly often. Right. <laughs> so I, I don't remember what the number, but I, I got to like the 49th ranked person in the country in my age group. Yeah. And I was really excited about that. Right. And it's funny at the same tournament as the speed chess tournament, you ever meet somebody where you only meet them for like one day or you only meet them once, but they've made an impression on you that will stay, stick with you forever. I met a kid named Jonathan Goldfarb. And he, Jonathan Goldfarb was the number four ranked kid in my class, or, or, or was the no, number four ranked kid in my age group. And so I was like, oh, you know, if I beat this guy, my, my rating's going to shoot up and whatnot. Jonathan Goldfarb kicked my ass. And he did it in a way where, and we played like three times. He did it in a way where like halfway through the second game, he's like trying to help me. And I'm like, fuck you, man. Like, you know, and it was, but that was also the time where I was like, you know, chess it might not be for like, I like chess, but, John, but Jonathan Goldfarb, like freaking love chess and he knew everything about it. And it's funny. I, I think that uh, these two, that Golden State and Miami fit that description as well. Right. Like that the kind of the masters of the, of the sequence that, again, are, are uh, I, I think it's very central to how these series have gone. So I've been playing Whoa. more chess lately. That's the only reason why. I asked. Okay. But, but okay. go ahead, Mike. <laughs> Mike, please jump in here. We're already yeah. off the rails. Good job. Pete. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> so I just found a Los Angeles Times article from 1995. Chess, colon, international news. The notion of male supremacy in chess took another hit last week in Prague as a team of the world's leading female players defeated a team of veteran male grandmasters, 26 and a half to 23 and a half. Later in the article, I was really hoping Pete's name would come up, but Jonathan Goldfarb scored five and a half <laughs> to three and a half to garner the scholastic prize. Now, I wish this reporter would have dug deeper to see when uh, this this Jonathan Goldfarb, who is now a legend, a Laker film room legend, encountered one Pete Zayas. Um, Mike, I guarantee you Jonathan Goldfarb known- <laughs> Jonathan Goldfarb is somewhere making a crap load of money right now. I guarantee you this. Also known as uh, as young Bobby Fisher. But man. Um, Man, I was very excited. To, it didn't take me that long to find Jonathan Goldfarb. Um, in, in, That's in awesome. I, I've never Googled him. So I, yeah. The kids who are prodigies, right? Like, and if you're fourth ranked in whatever, in whatever age group you are and you're a kid, odds are you're pretty damn good. And, and so there is a, a memorization and like a factoring and like an instincts that you play with. And there is there's a certain amount of theory that you have to understand when you're playing chess. And it's not too different from basketball when we yeah. talk about this idea of the framework of the court, the framework of the board, where pieces and players can move, where you thrive, what players can do what and what they what they can and cannot do and what they should and should not be doing based off of all of these factors that are going on. And. It's one of the reasons why I've been enjoying playing chess more 
And it's an interesting application when you talk about like sort of transposing basketball on to this like chessboard idea. And you're right, Pete, about this idea of how the teams that find themselves winning, they are deploying very specific tactics in order to put their opponents in difficult positions, much like I'm sure Jonathan Goldfarb was putting you in difficult positions where you're sort of like, I don't know what the best move is here. And I don't even know if there is a good move at this point. And I felt like there was this stat that came out, Mike, over the weekend about Miami and how the Heat have only won two quarters of basketball, but they've won two basketball games. So there have been 12 quarters of basketball played and the Heat have only won two of them. They've only outscored the Celtics in two of those 12 quarters, but somehow they have been leading on the scoreboard at the end of two whole basketball games. And that idea of being able to pressure the Celtics and put them in unbelievable holes just in one specific period of a game, I think has really shown the way that they can leverage their specific skills and tools over Boston and and, and sort of put them behind the eight ball in, in a way where they are having trouble like getting all of the way back in to games and winning. So I'd be interested to hear sort of what you're seeing from not only just a tactical standpoint, but just the like psychology of the warfare between these guys. Well, I want to be respectful. If there is a fan, a Laker film room listener out there that isn't into this um, side project that we want to get into with chess and Jonathan Goldfarb, um, I will respect that by not reading line by line the feature that I think I just found in the LA Times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I will. We will get to that. Mike's, like, Mike's for, like, screw the basketball. This is great. <laughs> in further pods, but. I do think it's an apt analogy uh, and kind of metaphor for these two playoff series that we're seeing. And so watching that, watching that third game, especially I found myself kind of, you know, I've been pushing back a lot on Pete and the ball handling stuff uh, the last couple of years, right. In favor sort of of the, the Lakers makeup, you know, even taking Rondo out that won the championship and Boston just, they, it's like they have certain guys they just cannot dribble against this Miami team. And Jalen Brown, who was awesome overall uh, in the game, but like was 14 for 20 and, and not in like he scored 40 points. And yet he coughed the ball up so many times, you know, especially to Victor Oladipo in Miami, like the, the turnover margins points off turnovers was 33 to nine in this game. And Miami had, as, as you alluded to, they had 19 steals, which was what, Pete, second all-time or something? It's something like that, yeah. yeah. And so now on the one hand, on the one hand, you give Miami all the credit for that and you say, well, what's Boston doing and why, why don't they have another guy that can put the ball on the floor better? And what was Jason Tatum doing even before the injury? Um, Tatum had four assists to six turnovers. He was three for 14. Looked nothing like the world conqueror that was going toe-for-toe at times with Giannis. And, but then I also thought, okay, well – the referees were really letting Miami be as physical as they wanted to be. And that happens in the playoffs sometimes. So it's not, it's not necessarily an excuse for Boston, but you know, like PJ Tucker, right. The, this is what he did to Kevin Durant, the way the treatment that he was giving to Tatum. And I just thought a lot of those vet things that like, this is how you win 
a grimy playoff game that Miami was doing that because Boston's better talent wise. And, and you also though, like you can't just, you can't dismiss Miami either because they just didn't have their best player in the second half. And they found a way right to make it work. Like it wasn't pretty Boston got Boston was to me, the shot that made all the difference in the game was that ridiculously contested deep Max Strews three where Strews just was, was not worried about it in the moment that he made the shot and he's, he ends up hitting four threes in the game. But um, so I, I want to just give Miami credit, I guess, for whatever the other, the other, whatever the excuses that Celtics fans can make and we're more talented and the refs and this Miami just found a way to get the job done. Let's take a quick break and come back and dig a little deeper into that series. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the ways that I enjoy how American football is covered is I think that the announcers and analysts do a good job of segmenting the different kind of fields of action. So you have a good idea of like how the offensive line versus the defensive line works. If you watch football, you know, kind of on a regular basis, you understand those battles to some degree. And then you understand the linebackers have a different job. And then you understand that the secondary has a different job than those two. And so that phenomenon exists in basketball as well and to me the idea of ball pressure of how much how you can get up into the guy that has the ball and put him under pressure is similar to like an NFL pass rush so you might have a great quarterback you might have great running back and wide receivers but if your offensive line is getting dominated the quarterback doesn't have the time to make the decision and that sped up decision can lead to turnovers. It can lead to fumbles and pick sixes and things like that. And so that's something that Miami has several guys. I want to focus on that front first. So that to me, the ability to pressure the ball is your defensive line of the NBA. And Miami has a lot of guys that are capable of doing that at a lot of different positions. And so I thought before the playoffs that the way to beat Boston was to be able to switch with size. 
But from watching it a little more, I'd say more it's the ability to swarm with size. And that starts, I think, with the ability to pressure the ball. So talk to me, D, about your just your thoughts on ball pressure and its importance. I mean, it's so important. I think you're seeing it in both series, actually, because the Warriors are doing very similar things to Luka. Um, and, and Luka's much more adept at handling that that pressure, and he's not getting as sped up. But mistakes come from pressure. And, and so in getting back to Boston, I don't know if it's a fatal flaw or not, but they're, I don't want to say even an inability because they manage it well sometimes. And sometimes they handle it just fine and everything just goes exactly as they want. But pressuring the ball makes you use up shot clock and makes you play deeper into a possession. And then as in the same way that you were using that analogy, Pete, of of like in speed chess, where the clock then becomes a factor in your decision making, it's the same in basketball. Yeah. If you're operating at, under eight seconds in an NBA shot clock, you feel that as a player. And when it's six and five and you're suddenly like, okay, well now I have to do something. Or if that's always cognizant in your brain that the pressure is coming, how can I beat it? And then you decide that, oh, well, the way to beat it is to split this trap. Well, no, 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 Jalen Brown, you're trying to split that trap, but Oladipo is going to jump that. Because you split the trap the possession before and you can't give that's exactly what happened. Yes, you can't give a good defense the same thing twice. Just like if you're on defense, you can't give a great offensive player the same thing twice because then they're like, oh, you blitzed me. Well, guess what? Now I see that blitz coming and I'm going to spin out or I'm going to hit the short roll or I'm going to do right. And there's all of these tactics and these counters for the thing that you're trying to do. It's just leading to turnovers. And Mike. You had talked at the end of the last pod about like, well, one of the things that Miami can't really be doing is turning the damn ball over. And 19 steals, that's an incredible number. It's like a quarterback throwing seven interceptions in a game. You don't get 19 steals. Shit, you don't even get eight steals in a game. And if you get that many, you're like, that's a lot of steals. Imagine getting two and a half times that many steals it's honestly a ridiculous number like forget the turnovers steals live ball steals like come on man that's an incredible disruption to what the other team is doing offensively and as an offensive player pete like you feel that pressure and it makes you start to second guess even more and then your accuracy on passes like smart through a simple pocket pass And he led the guy literally like six inches too much. And then up comes the blitz from the backside and they're poking that ball away. And suddenly they're running the other way for a dunk. And it's stuff like that where if you're a Boston and you can't get that simple aspect of the game, and I call it simple because that's the fundamental stuff, but the Heat aren't making that part of the game simple. They're making it as difficult for Boston as possible. And that's a problem within the series that, and I wonder, does Boston have the personnel to solve it over the course of a series where they're going to just keep hammering that point against them and making them prove it? Well, the other part of this series that's to me been ridiculous is the overall physicality and some of the injuries that it's causing. 
or at least Man. some of what all of the bodies in the same place are causing. It, it made me think of, I don't know if you guys watched the challenge uh, on MTV, which arose out of real world and road rules years ago, but it's, it's, it's something that I enjoy. And they've got this one contest. I think it's called hall brawl. And it's basically, there's a hall, but it's, it's, you know, it's like glass, not glass, but plastic. So you can see, you can see through it. Like the cameras can see through it. And one guy's on one end. Um, one gal's on one end, the other a guy versus guy, girl versus girl. And it's basically one person comes out, whoever gets out first and hits the bell wins. And so, you know, just a rudimentary, just like mano a mano. Yeah, and it's great. It, and so you're and so there's different strategies. But for the most part, it's basically like who's stronger. And sometimes you, but if the person is fast enough. And like this difference between the speed and the strength wears out. But more often than not, if you're bigger and you're stronger, it's you're going to plow through that other person. And watching this series, it's just the collisions that are happening for rebounds and f for uh, loose balls. It's just athletic bodies moving fast and hard and aggressive. And so you see, you know, Tatum and Marcus Smart suffer these injuries. And those weren't even necessarily at those types of plays. Then you have Jimmy Butler going out. Uh, you have Kyle Lowry coming back. You have Robert Williams, who is expected to play and then didn't play. And each one of these these injuries makes a big difference. Like even one of those in a series of this tight. And so Pete was talking about Lowry early in the series. Fair. Like point granted, Lowry comes back. Um, but then Robert Williams being out enables Bam to go off, which we expected that he was going to get better. But Bam had 31 and 10 on 15 to 22 mm -hmm. from the field. What do you have the, what do you have the prior game? Like six or something? He only I think took he like had, 10 shots the whole series before. Yeah. Then. He had six points on three of six shooting in the previous game. And so I do, I think that's part of it. Now, part of it is that Bam is always good. He's going to, he's going to know that he didn't play well and he's going to look at it and he's going to improve, but just a guy being in or a guy being out is uh, in addition to the physicality and maybe related to it has made a massive difference. And, and that to me may ultimately decide the series who can stay healthier, who can keep more guys in the court, and who can be tough. That is absolutely what's going to decide this series. I, I think that the healthier team has... Now, Miami... Gosh, see, I go either way on this, Mike, because for Miami in Game 3, they blitzed Boston. And I think in Game 1, there was a certain degree of like... Hey, you you won, but they didn't have Smart, they didn't have Horford, and then the way that Boston absolutely kicked their ass in Game Two was like, yeah, that Game One shit was cute, but you know that's not going to happen again. And so, like, were you surprised at all, Mike, that they jumped all over Boston in a game that it felt like Boston that the like Game Two was a momentum game, and so Miami jumping all over them? I was like, wow, that was that struck me in a way that I think is notable for the series. Well, yeah, this I really could go either way, too, because sometimes there's the if you if you're the home team and the road team gets a split in your building, then you come out in game three guns blazing like uh, like the Derek Fisher game, you know, game three at Boston mm -hmm. 2010. But when the games when they happen the way that they happen, you know, and and Boston was able to have such a big victory in game two, I do think that we saw some of that for Miami. So they were they were the aggressor in that context. But now, you know, now this is why game five, like Boston should come out with that complete ridiculous desperation. They'll probably mm -hmm. get more calls, uh, at least in the context of I, I thought they actually got a lot of calls in that second half. But now that mm -hmm. they're down, um, now that they're down two to one, I, I just think that the the aggression that they're going to have going to the rim is going to is going to it's going to work hand in hand with the calls. 
So I'm if I'm assuming and we shouldn't do this, right, because it, it, this will depend on some of the, who's available and who's not, uh, especially with Jimmy Butler. But if yeah. Boston can pull out this game four, then the game five is the first time where it's like, OK, uh, enough of the sort of you did this in this game, you did this in that game, whatever the natural NBA advantage should be coming in that should go away and then we should see the the full-on brawl uh basically in that game but uh yeah Darius I, I don't know if you have a preference one way or the other but I could kind of make either argument as to what the team motivation is no well let's go to break because I want one more Miami point and then we'll transition to the Western Conference Finals So, Mike, I think you make a great point about, like, by Game 5, Team said the Lynn, and they show, like, their true colors, and, like, the hands that are there to be played are there for everyone. The thing that I'm interested in, though, is Eric Spolstra, because he has a tricky way as being one of those tactician head coaches where he deals himself a new hand almost every game because he has the ability to then adjust and deploy different tactics and ways to keep you off balance. And I thought that's what happened in game three is they did blitz them. And Mike mentioned Tatum's poor performance. Part of that was because 14 shots is not enough. And it's because they were just like, oh, you're coming off ball screens. Anytime you come off a ball screen, we're showing you two. Very similar to what Dallas did to Devin Booker, right? And so Tatum is adept at making the right reads, but it's hard to play through two defenders all of the time and still get up 20 or 25 shots. And so a guy like Brown benefited from that and other players will benefit from that amount of attention. But I'll be interested to see what counters Boston has for that. Right. Because maybe it's saying, okay, well, Tatum, you're going to play in isolation more. But then it's like, then it's like truly make or miss league. And Tatum's very, he has all of the skill in the world to basically say, oh, single coverage, I'm going to eat. But if he has a seven for 20 night, right, then you're in trouble. And so I'll be like the chess match aspect with the head coaches is something that I would think that that favors Miami. And that's the thing that I'm looking forward to. Pete, if I can just throw this in too, I still think that in the half court, Miami should struggle to score more, right? And, and that's why all of these turnovers and the fast break and the way that that went uh, in game three, I still think there's some part of that that I have a hard time finding to be super sustainable. But do where where do you where can you poke holes in that? Do you think Lowry unlocks some of that? Do you think that Miami can score enough if, if Boston is healthy? So. In context with what I think they can do defensively, because remember you asked after game two, like, what can Miami do to adjust? And I'm like, they're going to win this series if they win it. It's going to be because of their defense. Right. And so picture them as one of those NFL teams that that Ravens team that you were talking about recently with Brian Billick. And it was like Trent Dilfer's job was to not screw up. You know, that's I think Miami's offense is a little better than that. Um, the counters I have to your point, which I think is mostly correct. I want to put say that up, 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 up front. I mostly agree that Miami's half court offense should struggle. But to Darius's point about Spolstra, he's him and Ty Lue are my favorite series coaches to watch. And I learn so much from them. So the advantage that Miami has over Boston is in the decision-making realm. They're older, they're vets, 
they not their first rodeo on and it isn't for boston boston those young guys have high level experience too up into the conference final this isn't theirs either but the miami heat roster i think we would agree is more clever than the boston roster is so how does a coach drag a team into the realm of decision making more than they normally would be one of the adjustments that Miami has made is they've gone to a lot of split cut action. And so if you're squ- switching everything the way that Boston likes to, especially in their non-Tice groups, in that split cut the, and a lot of their actions, you're forcing Boston to switch three times. And there are different attack points where you can attack during a switch. Lowry's main thing that help, that makes him useful versus a switching scheme is his ability to shoot that jumper off of a jump stop while going left. And so a lot of what Miami does is that handoff stuff that kind of cycles around the perimeter and guys are shooting off of jump stops. Even that wide pin down screen on that big Struce three, he was jump stopping going to his left. And so there's kind of this wheel happening out there in which they're telling Boston, you have to make... Like if Boston makes the correct decision, they are going to stop Miami. Like Miami's not going to be able to create advantage. But what Miami's doing, what I'm seeing is Miami's being like, oh, we're going to make you make 12 decisions on this play. And if you can navigate those 12 decisions on this play and whatever number it is, right, then you won that position. You won that position. We're not going to be able to score. Or maybe Jimmy Butler make something out of nothing. But if Jimmy Butler's not playing, no, you probably won that possession. So that's what I see, Mike, is that like – Yes, they might they have a hard time scoring. I think when everybody's healthy that it happened in the half court, but it was 60 to 35 at some point like Miami's been scoring on them. I know a lot of that's their defense, but like they've been okay. Darius, do you want to hit on that or do you want to jump to Golden State and Dallas? I actually think that idea of making decisions is a perfect transition point to the Warriors because that's exactly what the Warriors offense has done to really I think demoralize the Mavs. And we don't need they've to, been brilliant. We like we don't need to like get deep into the weeds about it. But all of the stuff that Pete was just talking about in terms of decision making and how you leverage shooting and shooting ability and the attention that the defense wants to pay to a shooter against the defense. Golden State's putting on a masterclass right now against a Mavericks defense yeah. that really figured out Phoenix and found ways to like, oh, you don't want two on the ball, Devin Booker, or you're uncomfortable with a late switch, Chris Paul. Well, Steph Curry's like two on the ball. Shit, put three on the ball. I Like, great, right? That just, that just means there's more people open to pass to. You want a late switch against me? Well, I'm just going to drive by you. Steph was driving by Luca. He was driving by Kleba. He was driving by whoever was defending him. And Clay, coming off of wide pin downs, was doing the same. The ability to, and this is where your speed chess analogy comes back, Pete. If you're an over the board chess player and you're used to playing 10 minute matches, 15 minute matches, 30 minute matches, and then you go play a one minute match, you are going to be in trouble no matter how high your rating is, because it's going to take you just time to adjust. Well, Golden State's been playing one-minute matches for about yes, five years now. Opponents are not used to, the, to being sped up as much as Golden State speeds you up. And this is where Memphis, Memphis is just like, oh, you want to play fast? Yeah. Well, yeah. we want to play fast too. And we play fast our own way. We play fast with athletes. 
And if you don't have the athletes to keep up with us, well, then guess what, man? This is going to be a horse race and we're just going to sprint right by you. But the Mavs are sort of like, well, there's too many decisions to make here. And we don't have enough on the back line in order to keep up with all of these shooters coming off of all of these actions. And can you guys stop running? Can you stop running around? Can you stop cutting? Because off of offensive rebounds, even Clay got a dunk off of an offensive rebound where Jalen Brunson was out there and he was sort of like standing around, just sort of like, okay, kickout's going to come to Clay. I'm going to be in position. And Clay just back cut him. Right. And then he got a dunk and it's timeout Mavs. But that level of attentiveness and and deep and being so detail oriented defensively, the Mavs aren't there yet with with what Golden State does. And seemingly they're never going to get there because they're down 3-0 now. Yeah, that was this has been such an educational series and seeing, first of all, I I hate when a team kind of falls off even and lord knows we've experienced this uh the last couple of years as laker fans but falls off as a result of, of injury so it's just kind of great to see the warriors back i know not everybody likes the warriors and i don't particularly like them either but the fact that they are there in the arena competing as they are um in this newest version of themselves i'm it's it's good to have them back and they're the team that's probably the most influential over the sport of basketball since two, 2015. I think they've influenced how teams defend more than anybody else uh, and and how and spacing concepts that this has been an ongoing story throughout the NBA history going back to the seven seconds or less Phoenix teams to the Dallas teams and, and whatnot. But those types of teams, Golden State holds that mantle as the best skill team in the league and has been over the course of this era, Mike. And the thing that stands out to me in that whole chess analogy and, and whatnot is they are masters of the sequence. They like when Dallas comes out and says, hey, we're going to spread you out and rotate around and fly around. Golden State must be thinking, shit, we invented that shit. The way you want to play? Oh, yeah. Give us four on threes. Good luck. And they're able to operate on on the sequence faster than Dallas can. And so like you've seen Dallas kind of like start to dismantle a bit, like they're starting to fall apart. And it's because that speed has just has has cut them up. Well, first of all, Golden State, for me, I have always kind of enjoyed them. And there's been part of that that historically the Warriors and the Lakers have never been good at the same time. And and that, like, even since I got the job, right, and the Lakers won the title in 9 and 10, and then kind of they start their decline just as Golden State starts their rise. And meanwhile, I'm, I'm doing the show with Michael. And so Clay's on the team. Everybody loves Clay. I love the way Steph plays. Uh, you know, love the way that Draymond plays, other than some of the histrionics from time to time. And I love Steve Kerr. So there's always been I've – always, I've always sort of, you know, not like a fan, but if having to pick between them and somebody else – um, I've more or less rooted for them and the way that they play and continue to enjoy watching them play. So here they are now with the current iteration where they've managed to add all of this legit talent. Like what a ridiculous trade. We we can all criticize Wiggins for certain things, but with how he's playing now, uh, yeah, to he's been great. Russell couldn't even get on the court in the most important moments. And they also got Kaminga in that trade, you know, so that was a brilliant move. Then they, they add Otto Porter jr. And they add the now injured Gary Payton, the second, 
And like Moses Moody looks like he might be a player. So, and then of course, Jordan Poole, who they draft in that Jesse Buss range and develop, including using the G League, another thing that the Lakers have done well. And so this team to me is very likable. And I think where, where this series really, to me, turned though in a big way was halftime of game two and Dallas played great. And so the first game, you could kind of tell they, it took them seven games to play Phoenix and they get to Golden State, totally different kind of team. Golden State, as we mentioned in the previous pod, had been playing Memphis, who I want to give more credit to, right, for how, how much Memphis gave them a hard time. And but alas, Dallas plays really well and they build this big lead. Um, they're up by one at one point by 19. And then it was like at that point, I don't know if Golden State just figured out how to play against them or what it was that was a little bit different. But mentally and, and then just they started to bang them and beat them up on the glass like in a they and that's not necessarily just a a smarter like a mental advantage there, although it ties into it some, Pete. Yeah, their their offensive rebounding has been great all playoffs. This yeah. is one of the things I want to do a deep dive on because they've been kicking everyone's ass on on the boards. I think that also speaks to like they know like one extra step of the sequence. So like some of the ways that a guy like Looney gets a rebound is like he's just a step ahead mentally of the guy that's supposed to box him out. So he gets there and it's, you know, nice, easy little putback. And maybe maybe part of it, I don't know if I could prove this, but the threat of the shooting, and I think Darius hit on this in the in the text yep. thread. Wait, when you you always are having to fly out there, right? If it's if it's staff or if it's clay or if it's pool, and guess where that's pulling you away from, Darius? No, it's the paint. And we mentioned this a couple of pods ago, but they kill you in the paint. Like in game two, they had 62 points in the paint, and 38 of them were in the second half. And they're not shooters that only want to shoot. They are shooters who are just like, if you give me a lane, I'm gonna leverage my shooting. And that has been the secret to their offensive success. Just like no one talks about how great they've been defensively, but they've been, you you know, Luke has been getting numbers, but they've been like, okay, all you other dudes, like, go ahead, take these jumpers and we're going to close out short and we're going to keep showing help to Luca, Pete. But they've been leveraging their shooting in ways where it's just like, yeah, we're getting layups. Layups, layups, layups. And then when, just like Mike said, when you run out to to the arc and you're constantly in scramble mode, the last thing you're doing is boxing out. And so Wiggins is like running to the offensive glass and Porter and Draymond and Looney. And they're all just sort of sneaking in there because the, everyone's eyes are like, where's Steph? Where's Clay? Where's Poole? And it's something that, until I think you're in the when you're in the blender, because it's not just with on ball screens it's off ball actions where you're super worried about where these guys are, that you're always in the blender. It's not like you have to get it started with a ball screen. It's like, no, you're in the blender once they start running wide pin downs or floppy action. It's it's like. Too many decisions. Yeah, they make you make so many decisions. That's exactly what I was going to say. Well, yeah. and, you, and you can't, and this is to tie the Lakers into this, as we always try to do. If you've got AD and LeBron, and specifically in this context, like AD, just that superhuman athlete that can make up for all that physically, like Dallas doesn't have that. You know, Memphis did. Memphis had a lot mm-hmm. of those guys. Memphis had mm-hmm. a lot of freaks, you know, who could get to be in one place and then get to the next place. And then, and then Golden State's looking around like, oh, man, like our stuff isn't working as well. And that's, Pete, the point you've made all year about Golden State. Um, and but it's this is this is sort of the 
when I get when I was getting mad at myself and our conversation and what we just yep. watched against Memphis and trying to separate that from what it would be against Dallas, right? Completely Dallas, different team. It's right? just a different we thing. We should have seen it. Yep. It's so hard to do that, right? When you're when you've just watched five games and you haven't seen the team kick it into that gear. And mm-hmm. that's part of what those some of those vet teams that we've watched on the Lakers side, sometimes they will. It's not toying around, but it's sort of like it's knowing that they're going to be able to call upon the things they can, they need to call upon four times. Yeah, it's and well, because it's what does it take to be good at that? Right. There's a mental focus and sharpness that to sustain that over the course of 82 games or even when you're up 2-0 in a series, right? Like there's that that natural momentum that teams like that, when they're not as mentally sharp, I mean, they're not great athletes, right? They're not, there's, there's going to be, they're vulnerable. And that's part of the reason why like my, both Miami wins have gone in a similar direction where they've gotten this big lead and then just kind of like held on. Now, a big part of that in the second one was Jimmy Butler getting hurt. And that's just a function of that. But um, one of the things I was encouraged by, if I could just tie it back to that series uh, one last time before we go, is that that was a 93 to 92 game with a couple of minutes left. And one of the things that one of the one of the markers I, I look at, like, is this true or not? Is something that happened earlier or not true? Is can you get it back? Meaning that all that ball pressure, all that forcing turnovers and all that, that's great in your run. You had momentum and whatnot. Well, can you get a stop with that? Like when Boston has, when your opponent has momentum, can you do this and it still work? And I thought that you know, Miami turned them over a couple of times over the course of that stretch. And that was part of how they got that win without Jimmy, because that was very much a winnable game. And so that like that mastery of the sequence and Golden State does this on both ends of the court. In some ways, they're the the team that everybody's trying to copy in for the last several years. Um, but also on the defensive end, that ability to get a good pass rush and put pressure on your opponent and force decisions. And yeah, forcing those decisions at a high rate of speed. I think that's something that's been a a big part of this weekend. Got a game tonight, Boston, Miami. Boston should win this one, but we shall see. Uh, We'll be back. Shout out, shout out, Jonathan Goldfarb. Shout out, Jonathan Goldfarb. I'm sure you're doing very well for yourself somewhere. (laughs) I hope somebody in his life, I hope there's some cross section of Laker fans and chess people. And and I just hope, Jonathan, if you hear this, I would love to invite you on to the Laker Filbert podcast (laughs) to discuss Pete's early career. He has no memory of me, Mike. I was just one of the people he freaking eviscerated you along the, speed, the way. You were one of the speed bumps. Yeah, he's got no memory. <laughs> he stuck with me the rest of my life. He has no idea who I am, Mike. All right, you've been listening to the Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. James has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's good. They win. A lot of Laker fans okay, sticking so around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. 
There's the move. Two, score. Miss it. It's over. Shot clock now to five. Bryant. Yes. And that was a little tough to Albert Gentry. Add insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic trying to disrupt Rondo. He puts it in. Here's Davis. 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.